If you have a Bible, uh, then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to continue our series throughout that, but we're starting a, uh, a new series that we're calling uh, Puff or Build, which I'm going to just say from the very beginning is a horrible name for this series. Uh, and I've just lost all ability to bring creative names to these series, so uh, whoever submits the winning title for this new series will win a million dollars. You have to donate that million after you win it, but or before you win it even. Let's go. First uh, Corinthians chapter 8, let's just jump in. Up here, uh, let's start with verse 1. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to this church in Corinth, and he is starting this chapter with now about food sacrifice to idols. And what he's saying here is that we found out last week that this young church in Corinth that was full of all kinds of problems and controversies and uh, divisions had written to Paul, the apostle, to answer some questions for them. And last week we talked about the questions they'd written to him were, what should we do about divorce? What should we believe about divorce? How should we function? And so now he's responding to another one of his questions, which was, what about food that is sacrificed to idols. Now, let me try to give you some cultural perspective of where this question is coming from, because in Corinth at that time, it was very common in that culture to believe that life is full of evil spirits, that there are evil spirits and demons everywhere. I mean, everywhere you turn, they're lurking, and what they're lurking to do is to get inside of you. And so this was a common superstitious belief that if you did something wrong or if you handled something wrong or if something happened to you to where you're sick or something, it's probably an evil spirit that has worked its way into you. And so they were very careful with the things that they did and the things that they said to protect themselves from evil spirits. Some of you have uh, traditions like that, like when you spill salt, you know, or knock on wood or, you know, why do we do that? You know, or isn't there something about don't sneeze in front of a mirror or something like that too? Okay, forget it. And uh, so they, they believed that one of the ways that demons uh, found their way into your life uh, easiest was through what you ate. Because, I mean, you're putting something in you. And if demons is on that, like if that's like demon salted meat or something, and you ate it, then, man, you know, alien, you know, that kind of stuff was happening. And so they really believed that the best way to stay healthy and the best way to protect yourselves from, you know, evil spirits was to sanctify your meat. And the way you did that was you sacrificed it to idols or to, to gods that you believed were going to protect you. So almighty Isis, you know, or something like that where you're sacrificing to them and you're saying, make this meat pure. Now, when they would take a meat to the temple to sacrifice it or a lamb or a calf or whatever they took, then this, this offering would be divided up into three pieces and a third of it would be burned on the offering and a third of it would be given to the priests so that they could feast on the goodness of your offering. And then the, the other third was yours to go home and eat. It seemed like kind of a raw deal, you know? But, uh, but actually it was a cooked deal. Wow. What do you guys expect? You know, not everything can be hilarious. All right. Anyway. So, and so if you took a big offering to, uh, to the temple 
And I mean, if you, like a cow, like what's a third of a cow weigh after it's been butchered? Does anybody know? We have any farmers here? You know, 175 pounds, man. All right, well, let's say you had 175 pounds of meat. What do you do with 175 pounds of meat? Well, you do a couple things. One, you throw a party. And you invite everybody, which was very common, that they would throw parties to come and celebrate their offering and pig out on a pig or, you know, a cow or something. Or if you didn't want to throw a party, then you would, you would sell that meat to a vendor who in the, in the marketplace would sell that as purified meat. So you'd never throw a party and serve somebody some meat that possibly could be salted with demons, you know? You purify that meat. That's what you do. That's good, good common stuff in a community. Or you sell it in the marketplace, make a little cash off of it. So in Corinth, it was almost impossible to go to a party. Well, maybe it was impossible to go to a party where what was being served wasn't first sacrificed to an idol. Because that's unheard of. Why would you do that? Why would you expose me and my family to demon salt, you know? You get the picture? And if you went into the marketplace, matter of fact, a lot of the marketplaces were in temples. You'd have to go into a temple to get filet mignon. Because that's where they sold all the stuff, because that was the place where most of the meat came from. So they're living in this culture where they're going to parties, they're going to friends' houses, they've become Christians, but the world that they live in, all around them, it's like everything is under this superstitious belief that if we don't sacrifice our meats to idols, then we're going to get demon spirits inside of us. And so now they're asking, can we eat that food? Because here's what's happening in the community. There's a group of people over here, you people, yes, and these people are saying, come on, lighten up. It's just steak. Come on, it's just pork chops. What's the big deal? Come on, guys. Easy does it. Then we got this group over here that have made these bracelets that have WWJD on it, and they're going, what would Jesus do? And Jesus wouldn't be caught dead in a false temple, right? Much less eating that stuff. So they're saying, hey, everything's okay. They're saying, no way. I'll go, I'll become a vegan, you know? So y'all are going to clog your arteries and you're going to get healthy, right? No. That's what's happening. So let's, let's read on. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to. But the man who loves God is known by God. <laughs> That's like, you know, like, what kind of answer is that? They're asking, hey, can we eat it or not? We just need a simple yes or no answer from you, Paul. Why this whole knowledge builds up? You know, it sounds like, you know, some kind of Buddha or something. Why would he do that? Well, he's, he wants to make sure that they understand that if I give you the right answer, if you have the knowledge that you seek, then it's going to swell, it's going to blow up your head like a balloon, it's going to make you proud, and it's going to make you feel all lofty. And what he's saying to them is you don't have an information problem, you have a community problem. It's interesting that Paul is saying that your problem isn't a lack of information. Your problem is a lack of community because they were divided over this. And so knowing the right answer isn't enough. Having information by itself 
is not enough to heal the split that's taken place in the community. In other words, he's even saying, if I answer this question, yes or no, it's actually going to do more to destroy community. Because this side over here is going to say, yes, yeah, see, we told you, we're right. Or this side over here is going to say, ah, see, we knew all along that our team was the best team. Divided down the middle. Matter of fact, isn't it funny how when we feel like we get the right answer, how easy it is for us to use that as a club to hit those over the head that we believe don't have the right answer? But Paul says love builds up. Because, see, what he's saying is, is when I use knowledge for my own gain, it becomes a journey of self-protection. It becomes a journey of self-promotion. We've got the spirit. Yes, we do. We got the spirit. How about you? Kind of thing, you know? It becomes a journey of self-glorification. We're the right team. We've got the right denomination. Yes, we've got the right church. We're the right ones. Everybody else, well, you know. And Paul is saying love doesn't do that because love seeks to bring together that which has been torn apart. So let's keep reading. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. And remember Paul is saying, hey, we're on a journey of love here. So he says, we know, <laughs> wait a minute, I thought we were on a journey of love. Why is Paul saying now let's go to knowledge? Let's read. He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. What is he saying? I mean, Paul's throwing down some pretty heavy theology here. Why is he doing this? He's saying, hey, we all know an idol is nothing. I mean, it's just a block of wood. In Psalm 115, verses 4 through about 8, it talks about idols, and it says, you know, their idols are silver and gold made of, by human hands, they have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And listen to this, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And remarkable. And Paul is saying that we weren't made to be those that have eyes and can't see, we weren't made for those to have ears and not hear. We weren't made to have mouths and not be able to speak or hands or feet and not be able to feel or walk. We've been made to be real people. But if we put our trust in idols, it takes us to unreal people. And this is the journey of being real. What's the journey of being real? There is one God. There is one God. And get this, Jesus is Lord. That's an offensive thing to say in our culture. It really is, because in our culture, in the world that we live in, much like the Corinthians Christians live in a culture that was very different than what Paul just said, because they believed there were many gods, and there were many lords. For him to say this was an offensive thing to the Corinthian culture, just like it is to ours. Matter of fact, if you go out into the world and you say, how do we understand spirituality? Here's what you'll, you'll hear a lot of different faith journeys and a lot of different gods and a lot of different lords. And then you'll hear this reasoning. All paths lead to God. 
I mean, you hear that everywhere. Matter of fact, they'll go on to explain, and I've heard this many times, is that all religions are coming up, they're blindfolded, and it's like all of us are blindfolded and we're coming up to an elephant and we're being asked to describe what it is that we're touching. And so one religion is touching the tail and describing the tail, and then the other is touching the trunk and describing the trunk, and the other is touching the leg and saying, no, 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 the elephant is this round, you know, rough skin. No, it's a skinny little hairy thing. No, it's this long, flexible. No, you know, one's touching the ear. But they're all touching the same God. They're all touching the same God. They're just touching different parts of the spiritual journey, but they're all going to the same place. And that seems to feel so good. And Paul is stepping in and saying, do you imagine the arrogance that it takes for me to pronounce that that's what all religions are? Because what I'm saying is, all religions are blind, but not me. All religions are just touching a piece of the elephant, but not me. All religions can only understand what they're immediately touching, but not me. I have the perspective to see over all religions. I have the perspective to see what none of those other religions can see. And that is that all of you are going to the same place. And Paul says, no, there's one God. And Jesus is Lord. And he's the one that says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's as offensive today as it was then to hear Jesus say that. But we know this. That's what Paul is saying. We know an idol is nothing, and we know our God is everything. And we know that our God sent Jesus Christ, and our Jesus Christ rules. He is Lord, and he has the authority of lordship to say what he wants. So why is he saying this? We're on a journey of love, remember? Next verse. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as being sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. So Paul is saying here that we all bring baggage into this community. (laughs) We do. All of us have baggage from our past that you're bringing into this room today. Just like the Corinths. They're saying, you know, some of you have had this experience which makes eating sacrificed meat a real issue of your conscience. I became a Christian uh, before I went to college. I was about 18 or so. And uh, my, my past before I became a believer, I'd never really met a Christian uh, before I became a believer. And uh, so I go off to college and was praying about my experience of going to college and really was brought under the conviction of the Lord not to drink when I went to college. It's not because I believe that drinking is a sin. I don't believe that drinking is a sin. Uh, I mean, I believe that Jesus was the best winemaker that the world has ever seen. I think the wedding at Cana proves that, and the fact that he's not going to drink it again till he's with me it comforts me somehow, you know? When I am at the banquet table with my Lord, he will pour me a glass of wine. I'm not a big wine drinker. Some of you are. You're looking forward to that, but I like to think that Jesus is also a great microbrewer. But that's me. But I went to college under this conviction that the Lord had given me, don't drink. Now, I was bound by my conviction, right? 
And for me to drink in that was a sin because I was violating the conviction that God had given me. I didn't understand why he had given me that conviction. I didn't have hang-ups with alcohol. You know, I wasn't an alcoholic. And I know that God's rule, even for those of us that don't have hang-ups with alcohol or don't have the convictions not to drink, we know that getting drunk is a sin. We know that if you're under 21 here today, drinking for you is a sin. Let me just say that. If you, <laughs> if you were drinking and you were under the age of 21, God says no. So I went to school. And uh, I just took a roommate by random. You know, I didn't know anybody at this school. God had started a whole new life for me. And so I went off to this college and got random. And God put in my room uh, the biggest dope head on our college campus. And I mean, when I say the biggest dope head, I'm talking about like when he walked, his clothes just had smoke coming out of him, you know? And it was remarkable because our whole freshman dorm uh, was just party central. And I didn't realize this on the way to college, but about two months into it, uh, me being at all the parties and me being at everything all these guys were doing and not drinking uh, created more questions than you could ever possibly imagine. Okay, dude, let me get this straight. Help me understand this. You live with Chuck, right? Yeah, I do. Okay, you, you don't party. No, get, quit that. And you don't even drink? No, I, why? Well, God came to me and told me not to do it. You think that opened some conversations? Matter of fact, uh, I fell in love with all these guys. I loved them. About half of them were alcoholics. And I loved them. I loved my time with them. I couldn't get enough time with them. And our favorite place to hang out was the bar down the street that had all the pool tables in it. That used to be a church. And now it was a pool hall. Well, something funny happened is that here is my first experience on a college campus where I am in relationship with all these guys that I love, but I'm also a part of these Christian fellowships where I'm with other Christians for the first time in my life. I'm like, wow, there are other people out there like me. I, I, you love Jesus? Wow, I do too. Like, how did that happen for you? And a weird kind of thing started happening is they started to avoid me. And they started to kind of walk away from me in conversations. And the rumors started happening that I spend time at the church bar down the street with all the guys in my dorm. Wow. He goes there. And then they started to pray that God would save my soul. And I told them, hey, I go to church more than you do. The bar was a church before it was a bar, right? Here's what's remarkable. Is a lot of them came from a background where they believed that alcohol creates all kinds of problems in people's lives. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Alcohol has a way of bringing destruction into people's homes. So they said, even though the Bible doesn't restrict us from alcohol, let's take the step of saying, well, God would never support something that brings destruction. So we're going to take the next step and say to drink is a sin. And then that wasn't enough because to drink is a sin. We can keep people from drinking. But what if you're around other people that drink? 
So they took another step that the Bible doesn't take, and that's this, that if you're around people that drink, then that's a sin. And then the mortal sin is if you go into a place where they sell alcohol, the church bar. And by that standard, I was Satan himself, you know, on our college campus. Do you see how we live in a culture where we easily bring division even into the community of faith? Because we start to set down rules and regulations that the Bible doesn't set down. And when we begin to do that, we start to judge one another. We start to gossip about one another. We start to condemn one another because we're standing in the position of saying, I know what's right, they don't. Therefore, that makes me better than them. I need to take a step back. I mean, we do it. I mean, think about our culture when it comes to movies. I grew up in the Deep South, and the church at that time said, hey, if you go to R-rated movies, that's a sin. Because, I mean, Jesus would never go and enjoy entertainment that has sin in it. And if it's R, it's got to have some sin in it, right? Because it's got some skin in it. Skin, sin. Sin, skin, you know? Or it has cursing in it. And we all know that Jesus would never curse, you know? And so where there was this rule, WWJD, what would Jesus do? We don't go by what he said or what he taught. We go by what we perceive he would do if he lived here right now. Like I had somebody say to me, if you were sitting in the middle of that R-rated movie and Jesus returned at that moment, wouldn't you be ashamed? I said, well, at least my underwear is clean. So my mom's happy, you know? So there's cultures that say the only thing you can watch is Disney. Uh, Then they messed up. Can't watch them now either. Teletubbies. No. Ooh. Wait. One of them is gay, right? Okay. We can't do that. All right. Wait. But we, we do it with drinking. We do it with tattoos. We do it with smoking. Nobody who's serious about Jesus would ever smoke. Music. The kind of music you listen to, the kind of music you don't listen to. Oh, and here's a a brilliant one. Clothes. I can remember asking my mom, Mom, why do I have Sunday clothes? Why do I have to, these scratch, why do I have to put them on? And she says to me, she's reflecting her culture, Jesus is God. God deserves your best. So we're going to meet him, so get dressed up. Hey, if you came to church in my hometown when I was growing up in a pair of shorts, good Lord. I, you, can any of you relate to that? How we live in cultures, but we all, that's all funny, and we all say, yeah, 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 but here at Midtown, we're free, man. Hey, dude, we're, we're free. <laughs> Bull. <laughs> you bring junk in here, too. And let me explain how you bring junk. I was with our small group this week. And we started talking about, hey, when you were growing up, uh, what, what did you learn about conflict? Well, here's the argument. Well, Jesus is nice. Jesus is love. Therefore, conflict is bad. And therefore, we do everything we can to avoid conflict. Don't get in an argument. If you get in an argument, hurry up, try to resolve it, get quickly. It's over. Thank you, God. We held our breath when the conflict, demon conflict, was in-house. You know, for example, driving to church, you have an argument, which none of you ever do, all right? 
We know that because you never bring the argument through that door because that's like demon salt, you know? Don't bring arguments in here and infect the rest of us with demon salt, all right? And so what happens is we're driving to church, you know, and Renee and I are having an argument, but as soon as the car goes into pee, and to park, you know, and you step out, argument's over. I don't care if it's uh, in three seconds, I am going to shoot you with a gun. And when we step out of the parking lot of the church, it's, I love Jesus and I love you. Hold my hand while we walk up to everybody, right? <laughs> Isn't it true? Because why do we believe that? We believe that you can't handle that we're fighting, right? That's demon salt. And so conflict is bad, and conflict is wrong, and conflict is a sin. And so what do we do with our sin in community? We hide it. We don't bring our sin in here. Come on. Seriously. Do we? We come in all dressed up. We've got our perfume. We, hey, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm, yeah, yeah, it's been a t- tough week. I'm kind of tired. And then you go home, and you're <laughs> I'm falling apart. I'm dying. But at church, you better bring it together. Because Jesus is God, and Jesus deserves your best. Or how about this idea about conflict? Conflict's not bad. You kidding me? Conflict is good. Because when I'm in conflict, guess what? I win. Bring it. Some of you are like that, aren't you? Some of you love to fight. I didn't think there were people like that in this world. Until I met a few of you, all right? And you love it. Because what does conflict do? Conflict shows two things. It shows who's the winners, and it shows who's the losers. There is somebody who is right, and there is somebody who is wrong, and the one who's right has the power, right? (laughs) So we were talking about this in our small group, and we said, well, so what does Jesus say about conflict? Well, conflict, if you go to James chapter 2, it talks about that conflict shows that there are, there are desires, deep desires inside of you that are warring against one another. And is it possible that conflict actually reveals that you have desires more than just you want to eat something for lunch today? Is it possible that conflict is stirring something so deep inside of you that the rest of your week you're pretending like you don't have a heart? And then you get into a fight and it realizes something deep inside is going on inside of me. And with the help of Jesus, now conflict is the doorway for me to step into the deepest desires of my heart to acknowledge what's going on inside of me so that in in that place I can learn how to love other people. (laughs) What? When we refuse to go to that place, then all our junk causes us to build walls with our preconceived ideas. And my walls are, I'm going to criticize you. I'm going to gossip about you. I'm going to judge you. Because good Christians don't have marital problems, right? Good Christians don't struggle with emotional issues, right? Good Christians don't dress like that, right? Good Christians don't talk like that, right? Good Christians don't go there, right? Good Christians would never camp out at Bonnaroo for a week, right? (laughs) No, sane people would not camp out at Bonnaroo for a week. They would take an RV, you know? (laughs) See, Paul is saying to them, you don't have a theological issue. And he's saying that to all of us in this room, too. Your issue may not necessarily be theological. Your issue is communal. So let's keep reading. Be careful, however, 
that the exercise of your freedom, because what's the truth? There's one God and idols are nothing. So what does it matter if you eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? It's like, hey, let's sacrifice a bunch of meat to this light right here. Okay? Okay, great. All right? Let's grill it up and let's eat it. All right? So that's nothing, but we know that our God is something. And so we are free. We are, are free as believers to know that whether I have a tattoo or I don't have a tattoo doesn't mean that I'm spiritual or not spiritual. Whether or not I go see R-rated movies or I don't go see R-rated movies has nothing to do necessarily with my faith. Whether I drink or I don't drink doesn't mean I'm more holy or I'm not holy. Whether I smoke or I don't smoke, because your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? That's not what that passage is talking about. But it's great to think about that, isn't it? Because if you think about that, then why aren't you in the gym? What are you doing here, right? Okay? So what Paul is saying, you're free. Midtown, we're free. We have freedom in Christ. We're not bound by these things. We are free to be people that live out of our heart and live in communion with God. Isn't that beautiful? And I've heard a lot of you say you come to church here and it's beautiful. You love this freedom in Christ that we preach and it's just set you free and you went and got a bunch of tattoos. But Paul is saying, be careful. However, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge Eating in an idol's temple, <laughs> not just eating meat, sacrificed to idols, they're in the temple. Like, you're free to go and go to the party, you know? Almighty oh, Isis, what is that, all right? Won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will never cause him to fall. Wow. Love should direct my path. Isn't this crazy that Jesus says you should love one another so much that you voluntarily lay down your freedom for each other. You can go look at this another time. Just trust me on this. Genesis chapter 32. This is the story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers. Jacob deceived his brother out of his birthright, ran away, and now he's coming back. He's on the shore of getting ready to meet his brother, who he's not certain whether or not his brother will kill him or embrace him. And that night, maybe you're familiar with this passage, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. He said, let me go. He was wrestling with God. He was wrestling with God and trying to fight his way through this. And Jacob had him, and he says, what do you want? And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Jacob said to the Lord, I believe this is Christ who he's wrestling with. So, you know, this is Jesus' support of professional wrestling. <laughs> Take that however you want. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, Jesus asked him, what's your name? And Jacob, interesting enough, his name means deceiver. And he looks at the Lord, and he says, I may be facing my death tomorrow when I see Esau. I'm torn apart inside of me. 
I've deceived everybody. I've spent my life just trying to manipulate and connive and work everything to at my advantage. And now I've come to the end of myself and I'm ready to go home. And he says, who are you? And he says, Lord, I am the deceiver. And then the man said, the Lord said to him, you're right. It's not going to be your name anymore. Now your name will be Israel, which means God prevails because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. God burst into his reality and wrestled with him and touched his hip and changed his name and said, no longer are you marked by your failures. Now you're marked by the fact that I'm your success. I'm going to give you freedom like you've never been able to experience before. All your life is you've manipulated and you connived and you tried to figure out how to make all this life work and it fell in on itself. It caved in on itself and destroyed you. And now I'm going to set you free from all that. Shout to the Lord, all right? So what happens when we're set free like that? What happens when we encounter that kind of love in our life? What happens when Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to give you a freedom and a life and living like you've never known before? What does that look like? Esau came the next day and embraced him. He said, I forgive you. A love fest, you know? And then after they reconnected, he said, all right, brother, come on, man. Get on your camel. Let's ride ahead. I'm, I'm throwing a party like you've never seen before. And Jacob's like, we're restored, man. Everything I hoped for and prayed for, now it's real. It's you. He looks at his brother and he says this. My Lord, you know that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they're driven too hard, just one day all the animals will die. So let my Lord go ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and the herds before me and the in the pace of the children, this conniver, this deceiver, this one that wants to work everything to his advantage so that he can be in power, once he was touched by God, what did he see for the first time? He saw the children. He said, you know what? You go ahead. I think I'm just going to lag back here with the weakest in our group. And I'm going to help them. Isn't it amazing that when God touches our lives, our lives are transformed from being those that are manipulating everything for our own self-protection to a place to where we defend the weakest in our community. And why is that so Christ-like? Why is that so God-like? Because that's what Christ did for us. In John chapter 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came, he tabernacled. That's what that word means. He tabernacled. God sent Jesus to bring the tabernacle, the sanctuary of God to us because he knew we couldn't get to him. He came down into our messy, mixed up, crazy world to minister to us. We are his weaker brother. We are his weaker sister. And he came down and said, I'll walk at their pace because they need me and without me, they're going to die. Do you know how screwed up I was when Jesus came walking into my life? Come on, I had a perm down to here, all right? Sold drugs. I had all this confusion about what life was about. Had all these little small things that I was hanging on to thinking, oh man, if I could just get that, you would have met me and you would have said, that guy's ridiculous, dude. I mean, there's not a person in this room that would have met me and walked away and go, oh, dude. He's not going to make it to 21. You know, those glasses, dude, do they make them that big? 
Like, what is that? I mean, I was the goober of goobers. I mean, I was the lost cause. I was the guy that had nothing going for him. And yet, Jesus, my Jesus, said, I'm going to come down and tabernacle with the weakest. He came and tabernacle with me. Why? And it's not because he's like, man, I just love lost causes. It makes me look so good. You know? No, and this is just crazy because he loves me. I mean, he, he loves me. We started the service by saying, have you ever shouted because he loves you? You may not have, but you turn to Zephaniah, and guess what? He's shouting because he loves you. He is shouting. Day and night, he is shouting his delight over us. He is singing over us. I want you to know something, all right, Midtown? It is easier for me not to believe that than to believe that. You think, ah, sweet, God's singing over us. You know, yeah, Jesus, yeah, you love us. You, you. I'm telling you, you step into that journey of saying, I want to hear my God singing over me. It will wreck your life. Because if you hear him singing over you, guess what you start to do with each other? You start to sing over each other. My commandment is this, love each other as I've loved you. That's what Jesus said. Greater love has no one than this to lay down your life one for the other. So should we really worry about each other's weaknesses? Should I lay down my freedom for your weakness? (laughs) Now, some of you, let me just be really careful because some of you are going to get this so wrapped up in your head that you're going to worry that, you know, if you go to the tap room today, this afternoon, and you order a brew, that possibly there could be a Christian from some church in town walk in, and they're offended, and they're the weaker brother, and we've sinned against them, and we've destroyed them. And everywhere you go, there may be a weaker brother. And so you're constantly thinking, weaker, are you a weaker brother? Are you a stronger brother? Weaker brother, stronger brother? To where you can't do anything anymore. You're like, cover up all my tattoos, you know, get a haircut, and just be really nice. I don't want to cause you. I don't want to destroy you. I mean, that's such a strong word. Come on. What I'm talking about is Jesus has put people in your life. And he has said, this is your community. Now, this church is your community. If this is the place you're doing faith, guess what? This is your community. And within this community, you have a smaller group, probably your small group that you meet in or your family, or your tribe, whatever it is that you're running with. Guess what? There is your family. And these are the people that God says, are you loving them? And let me tell you what it looks like when I love you. I know what your strengths are. But if I really love you, I also know what your weaknesses are. I know the junk you're bringing into this community. And when I see your junk, I don't demand that you get over your junk. How does knowledge about getting over your junk ever help you get over your junk? Try telling an alcoholic, alcohol is bad for you. Oh, that's all I needed to know. I'm not going to drink anymore. Okay. Or tell somebody that smokes, you shouldn't smoke. You know what? You're probably right. That's all. I just didn't know that. I'll just stop, you know? Or tell somebody that grew up dressing up for church, you don't have to dress up for church anymore. Or you don't have to go to church on Sunday morning. Oh, I just couldn't do that. I, I, got, I feel guilty if I'm at home on Sunday morning, Right? I couldn't go to a Saturday night service. I mean, Jesus only meets people on Sunday morning. I know that. When we know our friends' weaknesses, when we know where they hurt, that's when we step in and love them. 
and we say things like, Paul, if eating meat causes you to sin and destroys you, I will never eat meat again. If doing this destroys you, I will never do it again. I was in a small group. One of the guys in our small group, this beautiful man who was raised on a reservation, and he was a fourth-generation alcoholic. Fourth. He didn't know what it was like not to have some raging, out-of-control alcoholic in the home. But he was recovering. He hadn't drank in years. Guess what? Nobody else in our small group was an alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic. Matter of fact, nobody else in our small group had an issue with alcohol. Guess what we did not do as a small group? We did not go to the bars. We did not serve alcohol at lunch. And you know what we didn't do? Is that we didn't all meet together as a group, and then after the group was over, the rest of us went and had a beer. You know? Because we knew that would wound our brother. This is a place where he's weak. He couldn't sit and watch us all drink without feeling some draw to something that had destroyed four generations of his family. So what did we do? We put that aside. We put down our freedom. We gave it up because there was something greater. It is our love for him. See, we were the people that know the love and the patience that Jesus has with us. And the more I understand that, wow, it gives me lots of patience and love for you. So here's the question I want to ask you. A couple of things to consider. Do you know how patient the Lord is with you? If you don't, uh, you're probably very unself-aware. And the second question is, do you know what your friends need from you? Do you know where they're weak? Do you know where you need to give up your freedom to love them better? If you don't, I'm not sure you have friends. And that should concern you. Because no greater love than this, a man laid down his life for his friends. If you've so isolated yourself that there's nobody you're laying your life down for, wow, you better get off that it's all about me merry-go-round and step into the world of real life and be loved, but also go on the hard journey of loving. Okay, we're about to worship. Um, and I'm going to guide you through a couple of these questions because I hope that this truth that we've read about in Corinthians 8 will kind of push its way into your life, but that's up to you now. How much you're going to let the Lord kind of knead it into the dough of your own heart, okay? So uh, I'm going to pray and then kind of guide us through some singing and through some uh, questions to consider. So I encourage you to uh, don't give up on letting your heart be touched by the Lord yet. Let's uh, take advantage of this ending time, okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, that you have given us so much freedom in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave up your freedom, that you gave up your freedom, that you went to the cross for us, that you said so clearly, no one took your life from you. You willingly laid it down. You gave up your freedom of life, so that we would have life. 
And now, Lord, that you are in us, now that that truth is beating in us, now that you have given us your Holy Spirit, how is that not also beating in us? So, Jesus, come, we pray.